I really, that's a good question. I've never really been asked that before. I, I guess it was the way I was raised. My grandmother was, you know, primarily raised me. Not that my mom wasn't in the picture, but, you know, you help people, especially those that aren't as fortunate, so to say, or blessed. And um, as far as uh, my cousin, Christy, Christina Nelson and uh, Brandy Miller, their lives should not have ended this way. So it made me angry. And so I decided to funnel that anger into something that would be helpful and useful for them. And it just kind of morphed. Boobirds, and she's on the hunt for a serial killer. I'm Jason Blair. This is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. On a cool September night in Lewiston, a town of nearly 28,000 people along the Snake River in Idaho, three young people went missing from the Lewiston Civic Theater, a community theater in a building originally constructed in 1907 as a Methodist church. The theater was known in the region for producing award-winning musicals and plays and workshops where students could practice reading scripts and performing. The theater attracted many people from the region of rolling green and brown hills and rivers that straddled the borders of Idaho, Washington, and Oregon. 21-year-old Christina Nelson and 18-year-old Jacqueline Brandy Miller stepsisters who were both students at Lewis Clark State College and who had connections to the theater, were last seen after 9 p.m., leaving Nelson's apartment almost three miles from the theater. Stephen Purcell, a 35-year-old who worked as a janitor at the theater, was last seen by a police officer patrolling near the theater and his girlfriend who dropped him off at the theater around midnight to practice his clarinet and do some laundry. It took police time to connect the three murders to the theater, and it was more than a year and a half before Nelson and Miller's bodies were found in a field by a 14-year-old teenager who discovered the bodies when he went to retrieve a hat that had fallen off his head 35 miles away in Kendrick, Idaho. Purcell's body was never found. They were found bound with rope that some have said came from the Lewiston Civic Theater. Kristen, who went by Christy, was Gloria's cousin. In all our coverage of crime, we often talk about the victim, the crime, and their immediate family members, but we rarely talk about all those secondary victims, their coworkers, their roommates, their friends, their aunts, their uncles, their cousins. What makes Gloria's story unique is that she has decided to fight back and attempt to solve her cousin's murder. And unlike other similar stories, she has had her eye on one particular suspect, the same one that the police have eyed, who knows she's coming for him. It took more than a decade for police to publicly say what people in the area had long suspected, that they believed that the deaths of Miller and Nelson and the disappearance of Purcell 
who was presumed to be dead, were connected to the 1979 death of 12-year-old Christina White, seven miles away from the theater in Asotin, Washington. It was also connected to the death of Christina Noel David, a 22-year-old senior at the University of Idaho, who was last seen bicycling the 32-mile ride from Moscow, Idaho, where she was going to school to her summer job in Lewiston's sister city of Clarkston, Washington. White had been linked to a man who worked at the theater. A 2009 news report in the Lewiston Tribune said that Kristen David had worked at the theater. Christina White's body was never found. Kristen David was found dismembered in plastic bags wrapped in a local newspaper near the Red Wolf Crossing Bridge on the shores of the Snake River. Gloria worked as a mental health specialist in California, and for years she followed the case of her cousin's murder. And for years, Gloria, many in the Lewis and Clark Valley, and investigators believed that the same suspect who was living in a suburban North Carolina community and who's still there now was responsible for most, if not all, of the murders. Gloria was instrumental in two documentaries on the case, the 2018 documentary Cold Valley and the 2011 documentary Confluence. She now runs a Facebook group investigating the killings and has played a key role in the Snake River Killer podcast, which is currently exploring the murders. If you haven't seen it, I recommend you check it out. Gloria has worked closely with the Soton County detective Jackie Nichols, and she's found links between the suspect and a 1963 murder of an eight-year-old girl, Diane Taylor, who was killed while the suspect was living in Chicago, and a 1972 attempted break-in to a California mortuary. Today, we're going to discuss what it's like to be one of those secondary victims, how a cousin ends up on the pursuit of a potential serial killer, and what message she has for all of those who have lost someone and whose crimes remain unsolved. I just wanted to thank you for joining me. I, you know, I, I don't know how much we've talked about this, but this is a case that I've been following for many, many years before the documentaries. I mean, on some level, I think one of the things that really attracted me to the case was, you know, these were all young people, you know, you know, elementary to college age young people with their entire lives ahead of them. You know, the location of the crimes was so similar, but I think the thing that really captured me was that there was such a solid known um, suspect. And then, you know, when I was watching the documentaries on the case and I heard your story and your role as a cousin, I just found it so powerful. And it's one of the things that I've really held on to. And I think probably the best way to say it is I've, I've admired you from afar for a long time, so it's great to great to have you on and um, have this conversation with you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I I wanted to go ahead and just sort of like start with like a a question about sort of who makes you who you are. We've been talking about doing this for 
for several weeks. And I think there's been, what, a major fire in California and Oregon. Yeah. You've done animal rescue during that. You've helped with the volunteers about the base camp. I'm just curious, like, what makes you who you are? I really, that's a good question. I've never really been asked that before. Um, I, I guess it was the way I was raised. My grandmother was, you know, primarily raised me. Not that my mom wasn't in the picture, but, you know, you help people. And uh, especially those that aren't as fortunate, so to say, or blessed. And um, as far as uh, my cousin Christy, Christina Nelson, and uh, Brandy, Miller, their lives should not have ended this way. So it made me angry. And so I decided to funnel that anger into something that would be helpful and useful for them. And it just kind of morphed. How old were you when they passed away? I was uh, 21 years old. Oh, wow. So you were right around the, the same age. Christy was a month older than I am. Oh, wow. And so I've lived her lifetime twice over now. Wow. That's crazy to think. Were you guys, um, did you live near each other or were you close? No. um, We spent a summer together. And then we, first we were pen pals. Then we spent a summer together and then we continued to be pen pals. And... She was a very special part. You know how you meet somebody and they stay with you for the rest of your life. And she was one of those people. She was a good soul. She didn't, she didn't have any kind of mean characteristics or anything. She wasn't malicious. She was just a good, kind, caring soul and extremely intelligent, very artistic. She wanted to open up an art uh, gallery over in Asotan, Washington. Um, She also wanted to become a veterinarian, but that became too hard because then you, you know, you're seeing these animals suffer and that's hard. So she went into um, accounting and that's what her mother and her grandmother did for a living. So it kind of, you know, she fell into that naturally. So she was sort of uh, gentle, caring, kind of like what you described about what drives you she was it sounds like she was very much like that like she would have been out there rescuing dogs over the last few weeks or helping people yeah do you ever wonder about what her life would have been like do you ever imagine that often often I I, you know I wonder if we would have taken a cross-country trip when we were older you know adults what her career choice where that would have taken her. Would she have opened up an art gallery? Um, she was quite good. Very good. Abstract art. So yes, I do wonder where, where her path of, uh, in life would have taken her. Yeah. It just seems, it's just a lot of loss of, um, you know, unrealized dreams and, and ambitions and experiences. I think of things like the, the nieces and nephews that have never been born or the accomplishments that you haven't shared together or something like the wedding that never, that never happened. Hey, so I, I know it was 2008 that 
I think I read that somewhere where you really sort of locked in and began looking into that case. Could you talk a little bit about like what your early reaction to hearing the news? How did you find out that she had disappeared and then died? My grandmother told my sister and uh, myself and my mom that Christy had disappeared. And she didn't talk about it much. My grandmother didn't. We would get little updates. You know, she hasn't. Nobody knew, first off, where to look for her or Brandy. And I never met Brandy. So that she wasn't talked. Brandy wasn't talked about, you know, a whole lot. My grandmother um, would get news clippings um, from her from her sister, which was Christie's grandmother. But I remember the day when I was told that she was she was missing. They didn't know where she was at. I knew that something really bad had happened, and I would never see her again. And then when it came in um, that sh- they had found her body. That seems so surreal. I can still remember the clothes I was wearing, where I was standing, and it just really pulled the rug out from underneath my feet because, you know, this is this is somebody that's good and kind and was trying to, you know, achieve things in life at her young age, you know, going to college and such as that. And um, it just, it kind of it makes you realize there are bad people in the world. So something sort of broke for you there. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah, it did. And the, the way my grandmother and her grandmother, it became something that was talked about behind doors and you, you didn't get to hear a whole lot about it. And I wanted to know, I wanted to know what happened to her. Why did this happen to her? Who, who did this to her? So back in, in the infancy of internet, which was like 1995, 96, whatever, I started, you know, looking for anything I could find on the cases, which was very little. In 2003, I really started digging in. By 2005, I was into like different um, news threads, different different places where information was being shared. And then I found out the name of the suspect through Christina White. Do you, do you remember that moment where you first saw the name of the suspect? Oh yes, very clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, when I got the name of the, of the suspect, that was, it was, it was kind of, it, it was like, aha. Aha, uh-huh. now I can go and find out more about this person. And so I did verify it. I contacted Detective Alan Johnson. And I remember I was sitting in front of, of work and it was like 7.45 in the morning and I'm calling him up and I said, is Lance Boss the, the suspect in this case? And he said, yes. And I said, oh, okay. Why do you think he told you? Um, I think because I had been contacting him and I wasn't, I think he knew I wasn't going to let it go. So, and I continued contacting him and I ended, I went up to Lewiston 
and met with him and Detective Doug Clark. And I asked to see a picture of Lance Voss. And so he showed me a picture of, of Lance Voss and he allowed me to take a picture of that picture. Now, Detective Alan Johnson doesn't do anything. He is a, he is a man that, that he's no jokes, you know, it's all serious business. So for me, I think he knew I was going to do something with that and it would be constructive. And I did. Right, right. Um, you probably had a hunch that you could have a powerful. Well, I, and I think at that moment, you know, too, it's like sometimes you have to use uh, methods that are not, you know, the the usual con- conventional methods of trying to solve a case. And I appreciate what he did, and I appreciate the trust that. He, you know, allowing me to take that picture. And then I, I met Jackie Nichols, Detective Jackie Nichols. Yeah, she's the detective from Asotin where the Christina White case. Oh, yeah. And she is, you know, she is a wonderful human being. So I met her probably, it was right around 2009, 2010. And you know, she's put a lot of trust in me. I would never violate that trust. And again, it, it's like an unconventional way of, of you know, I, using somebody to, to help gather information. So um, I started the Facebook page, the Lewis Clark Valley Serial Killer. And I believe I started that in 2011. It's just interesting to me, and yeah, and it's a powerful Facebook page, that so many, in cold cases, so many victims, families, one of their, I was listening to one recently about um, Brianna Maitland, who was a a, um, woman who disappeared in a very bizarre situation in Montgomery, Vermont, but uh, the father was being interviewed, or was it the father? I think it was the father. And, and the interviewer asked him, well, what more do you know now? And he said, from the police, and he said, very little more than I know, knew on the, um, the first day. And I, I'm just wondering how, you know, from your perspective, like victims, family members like you who are advocating for cold cases to be solved, you know, what advice do you have for people? Educate yourself, first and foremost. Do not get emotional. Those emotions have to be put on the back burner because law enforcement wants facts. And then, you know, some things that, you know, all these crime shows, they go, oh, we're going to get the DNA back in an hour and blah, blah, blah. That doesn't happen. It It takes a long time for it to come back. But stay focused. I guess is my advice. Don't go down too many rabbit holes. Trust your gut. Because if you have a gut feeling about something, nine times out of 10, it's, it's right. Yeah. It. Oxum's razor, the simplest, you know, explanation. You mentioned before anger and mm-hmm. it's almost like the anger fuels you to try and solve the case. So how do you like, stuff that to just focus on those 
facts? Does it require like some element of compartmentalization? It does. Self space, I guess, to feel emotional. Go ahead. It it does. So when I feel like I've just oversaturated myself with information or researching or whatever the case may be, I pull away. And I could pull away for a week. I could pull away for a month. It all depends on how certain information has touched me, you know. And when I say anger, you know, some people, and I get it, they get very angry that law enforcement isn't doing more or they're not doing it fast enough or, you know, well, they can only do so much. And so much as county agencies there is so much money allotted towards cold cases. Right. Now I know some of the detectives on these cases have spent their own time and their own money or resources to try to find out more. And that's behind the scenes. They, you know, they're not going to give themselves a pat on the back or anything like that. As far as time to do testing, to do research, because you want to make sure that that your information that you you have is good. So you want to vet that information. So sometimes you get angry at those things that take, you know, the things that take so long or the answers that you don't want to hear. And um, I would rather use my anger in a positive way. So I've, uh, it's been a mm-hmm. quite a journey, quite a learning journey. And I, I can't say a part of me doesn't want to, you know, do it differently or, or, you know, just lose control, but I don't. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's something that you sort of have to actively kind of manage for yourself. Cause you know, one of the things I know from, you know, my time as a reporter, I, I learned like a lot about cases. Cause I used to watch things like unsolved murder cases or hear about them and think, wow, or hear after the arrest has been made and think to myself, wow, it was so obvious from the beginning. How did they miss it? But then as I started to cover it, I realized, you know, we only see like 1% of the case. We don't see the 500 rabbit holes that they Mm -hmm. went down. We don't see the people who are falsely confessing to the crimes, all these things that don't necessarily become public that consumes so much time. So I think over time and through that experience, I've probably become a lot more understanding of both the process and law enforcement. Has it been like, was it eye-opening for you to sort of be in the middle of it? Very much so. Very much so. But um, as I'm researching and as I'm giving information and I'm corresponding with different agencies I'm taking notes. I'm educating myself through this whole process. It's, you know, and part of that education is knowing how procedures are done and where the, you know, why it can't be done. One of the biggest, you know, misinformation, misconception is you can take the suspect's DNA and you can put it into CODIS. and you know, ta-da. And it, it, that is DNA, DNA database for criminals. Yes. Yes. You can't do that. You have to, um, 
you find a case and you put the suspect in that area. Does the MO match? Again, was he in that area? Could he have contact with that, that person? Several factors. And so is there DNA with that victim in that yeah. case? Right. Um, so yeah, it, it would be a wonderful thing to be able to get the DNA, put it into CODIS. And in, in this case, in these cases, because there is the span of time from him being active, it would probably light up like a Christmas tree. And there would probably be a lot of solved cold cases and families finally getting the answers and justice uh, for their family members or friends that they deserve. Hmm. Do you ever, and I want to ask you more about the um, DNA and sort of like what you think can be done to help uh, solve cases, but I wanted to ask you, like there've been a lot of cases recently that have made the news, like the um, killings of, uh, Abigail Williams and Libby Germain in Delphi, Indiana, or even from the 1970s, like the case that uh, Lloyd Lee Welsh was arrested for in Maryland with uh, Catherine and Sheila Loyne, who were were killed, where the clue that was key was in the case file from the first few weeks. Do you ever worry that there's something back there that you or someone else missed? Do you find yourself like worrying about that? Not worry, but it's like, it's always good to have fresh eyes. And sometimes, you know, the case files need to be looked at with different eyes. In our cases, there have been, uh, because there are so many counties, so many states, jurisdictions, all that, there have been a lot of eyes on these cases Mm. and, you know, I don't think at this point, anything's been looked over, but you know, who, who knows cases that have not been looked at in many, many, many years. And you have somebody come in and go, okay, I'm new and I'm going to look and they find something. It's absolutely wonderful. Those are the fresh eyes that need to be on, on the cold cases. I was going to just sort of by way of background, like, you know, there was the disappear- disappearance of Christina White, you know, the death of Christina David, which may or may not be be linked to the um, killings. And then Stephen Purcell, Brandy, and then Christy. All of those stories got attention, I know, um, in the news. But then one of the most fascinating things, I, I'm curious about how they were connected. But I'm also curious about how you, because people have really credited you uh, with this one, were able to connect it to a case uh, in Chicago and the incident that happened in California. I'm just curious, like, how were the cases originally connected and then how were you able to make those other connections? They had information about Antoinette and Nino who drowned or supposedly drowned in 1972. And I believe that was June 3rd, 1972. And that was the one on a beach. In yes. In Santa Cruz. Yeah. Okay. So we're looking at that and going, okay, that doesn't sound right for a woman to, and especially a young or uh, a teenager to be found naked 
on a beach. That's not a typical thing a woman would do. Right. And suicide like that. Suicide. So looking at some of, of that information and then looking at cases that. And, and the thing that got you focused on that case in general was if I have it right, Lance Voss, who would have been, I'm not sure what age he would have been at that time, but he was arrested outside the mortuary. Right? Yes. Like, yes. Like a knife and a camera. And yeah. Yeah. He had a flashlight, um, a camera and a, the hunting knife. And so you're looking at cases that are, that are similar just by him break wanting to break into a mortuary. He was stopped. We don't know what he would have done had he got in there. What did he say he was doing? He said he wanted to see his girlfriend. And this is not documented by any law enforcement. This is what the mortuary owner um, stated, that he wanted to visit his girlfriend one last time. Was he known to have a relationship with her? Uh, no. Wow. Well, had it been in the news yet? That, that that No, that wasn't found out until the documentary Cold Valley came out. Oh no! I was curious if if her death had been in the news and he could have. Yes, yes, yes. It had been. Um, That is frightening in itself. That is. It's well, and it for him if he said such a thing because this is again not documented by law enforcement, but if he did say such a thing, it kind of it. Okay, he's a necrophiliac, you know. that kind of removes the doubt there that he is or leaves you with very little doubt. So you start researching cases of break-ins and mortuaries such, you know, such as that drowning deaths with Diane Taylor's case. I knew he grew up in Chicago and my gut told me there's something there. There's something there. You just have to find it. What was it about, was it that it was his childhood or something happened in his timeline that was strange? Very little was known about his uh, childhood in Chicago. So I started researching newspapers.com. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but. I love it. uh, Yeah, it's, it's great. So I started putting in different search words and I came up with. Diane Taylor and little girl been strangled and such as that and stabbed. It was total overkill on, on how she died, but I was looking at the addresses and I was like, this is really close to where he grew up. And so I contacted the Chicago police department and there were so many precincts in Chicago I started with number one. <laughs> it's a big town. That's that's a wise choice. Let's start with one. And so I was, and what was really cool about that is they answered their own phones, talked to a very nice gentleman. He directed me to the right precinct. And I spoke with a Sergeant Detective Kevin uh, Bruno. And I, my hat is off to him. Um, for listening and, you know, taking it seriously because I, I was calling about a case that was like 54, 54, 55 years old cold. At what do the you time think I called. to take you seriously? 
Because I'm noticing this trend of law enforcement taking it very seriously. Um, I don't know. Maybe it w- first off, I was I'm very matter of a fact when I'm calling. This is what I have. This is the person I'm calling about. This is your case. So I gave him Lance Voss's name and, you know, the cases that he he is suspect in, which is over in Lewiston area, a contact, which is Detective Jackie Nichols. You know, mm-hmm. if he wants to make sure that I'm not, you know, some joker calling. And so anyway, I said, I, I wouldn't waste your time. I believe, you know, you might want to take a look at this. And he said, tell you what, I'll look it up and I'll give you a call back in a couple hours. And I thought, okay, hope you do. And he did. And he said, uh, this, this boss is not a very nice man, is he? I said, no, no, he's not. Mm -hmm. And so he contacted uh, Detective Jackie Nichols and she called me about, I don't know, it was like two or three days later. and. She never calls. We text back and forth and message and stuff and email. But when she calls, I listen, you know, because she just pulls me up. Yeah. And um, she says, you got a minute to talk. And I'm like, of course. And she said, you probably found his first victim. Oh, wow. He is, he was her YMCA youth camp counselor. He was seen in the alley with her. And so that put Chicago into motion. Oh, wow. So you didn't know that before. You kind of had a gut hunch based on what you could find out, but you didn't know for sure that they had a connection? Correct. Wow. Correct. It, it was just a, a a gut feeling that I had. It's. I definitely don't want you investigating me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would just give it up. I, whatever it is, I would just give it up. So they t- Chicago took that quite seriously, and um, they went they went all out in trying to find something that they could connect him, you know, with, you know, to her death besides circumstantial evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, so they weren't able to, um, but that doesn't mean it's you know on the back on the back burner by any means. Yeah. Let me make sure sure I sort of have the timeline, right? So Voss was born, what, late 1940s, 1947, I think. He was born November 15th, 1947. What's really kind of creepy is he was born on the same day as my mother. Different, Different year, but same day. November 15th. Wow. Mm -hmm. And I know he he had a turbulent life. Like his father died unexpectedly, I think something like that, when he was really young. He went to school in Chicago, right? Is that right? He and- did. He um his biological father died when he was just, I believe, a little over two years old. And his mother ended up marrying a family friend. And we don't know how that relationship, what that was like with his stepfather. Um, his, his mother, um, she was into music. So he, you know, that's something that he came by naturally. The theater. 
the yeah the theater. He's played the French horn and the trumpet since high school. Oh wow! How old would he have been? You said sixty-three, so 45. he would have been fifteen and a half years old, almost sixteen years old. So that's when Diane Taylor and she disappeared at first too, and then mm-hmm. she was gone. She was gone for three days, so she went missing on a Thursday, and her body wasn't found till a Saturday. And law law enforcement believes that Voss's parents were out of t- town during that time, oh, and so probably would have went to you know his house. He would have had you know access to do whatever. And my understanding was that, like, and tell me if I'm wrong here, but like, there's some idea or confirmation that one of her last interactions was with him. She had come up to him and asked him to unwrap a lollipop. Is that yes, right? yes. Like so there's a real strong connection. And then, how long? It was a couple days later they found the body, and I I was looking at your Facebook page. I think it was your Facebook page, and there was this picture that had been in maybe the Sun Times or one of the Chicago newspapers. And I swore when I looked at that picture, and I saw it before I saw the writing around it, that it looked like the suspect was actually at the scene when the photographers were there. Possibly, yeah, yes. Yes. It's like, I have never gotten a confirmation from law enforcement that it's him, but it's certainly, if you compare it to his high school pictures and everything, it looks like him. Was he interviewed by the police? Yes. Okay. Yes. He was one of, goodness gracious, 11,000, 14,000 people that were interviewed in the Chicago area when that happened. Wow. So it was, it was a big, big case there. And then I, I know he went off to the Navy at some point. Yes, he did. In 1965, January of 1965. Did he graduate from high school or did he go off early or? I don't know if he graduated from high school, you know, literally, but he was old enough to go into the Navy and, and being the only son that seems kind of odd that, you know, yeah. you would go off and, and join the service. And he did three tours of Vietnam. And I have spoke to people that were on the ship with him. Oh, wow. And they, they were surprised. They poked fun at him. They called him Ichabod Crane, you know, cause he was tall and, and skinny. Uh, so he got, Picked on because the thing that kind of struck me, you mentioned that he was 15 and a half. And in my head, I was thinking 1963, he goes into the Navy in 1965. So he would have been like right around 17. And I thought it was 18 that people had to had to, to get in. And and it just made me think, like, was he running away from something? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that was his ticket to get away from the area you know, um, get the eyes off of him. Um, I'm, I'm thinking that his mother probably took information to her grave about her mm. son. And she probably arranged for this all to happen for him to go into the service. Um, he did not do well in the service. 
Because, yeah, so he came out before 72, obviously, because that's when the internet, the Nino Santa Cruz mortuary incident happened. Yeah, he was, he was um, discharged from the Navy in July of 1968. Okay, so really quickly after being in there. Yeah, yeah. And he had had some, you know... He he didn't receive glowing reviews. However, he was not dishonorably discharged. He was just discharged. So something something probably occurred because we all um, know dishonorable discharge is like you did something absolutely insane. Uh, discharge without honorable, you probably did something really bad. Yeah. <laughs> the so I I was just curious with. How does he end up in Idaho or Washington? He, um, so when he was discharged from the Navy in the Bay Area, he stayed there. His, his mother and stepfather moved to the Bay Area, Sar- Saratoga, California. Um, his stepfather had um, family down there, Neputy. They had, um, I want to say it was like, real estate and insurance businesses and such as that. So he met his first wife, no, his second wife, excuse me, right around 1970. Hmm. And then they broke it off and he ended up marrying his first wife. That did not last long. I think that was less than, than a year they were married. He, she described him as lazy. She had a job he did not. Um, he would take the car, and this is when he was doing like the rally car races, and he was driving a 1968 blue Saab. He also had a white Alfa Romeo that didn't run. I want to say the year was like it was a 1970 Alfa Romeo. Um, he likes foreign cars. Um, but anyway, he was running uh, the rally car races, and she said at one point, instead of him doing the dishes, that he would take them up into the mountains and shoot them. Oh, wow. This is Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Lining Handbook. We'll see you next week for our second episode with Gloria.